ultimately, people who have the passion to explore are driven not by their own self-interest. They're driven by having an impact in the domain, not just making money themselves, but making a difference in whatever domain. Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Today, our guest is John Hagel, who has been a co-chairman for the Center for the Edge for Deloitte for almost 13 years, working on edge strategy and the future of work before starting his very own consultancy. The Center for the Edge, for those of you who don't know it, is a Silicon Valley-based research center that helps institutional leaders make sense of the changing global business landscape by looking at different challenges and opportunities that lie on the edge. John and I met at a Black Sheep event called PowerShift. He was one of the speakers there, and I was really interested in the way he thought about how we should tackle the world's greatest problems. John is also a really good friend of Gary Bowles, who was on episode 14. So you'll notice some of the recurring themes that he talks about, such as the big shift. John is also a prolific writer and the author of a couple books, such as The Power of Pull, which is a topic that we're also going to be exploring today. In addition to his views around narrative, what the passion of the explorer is, how one might nurture it, and hopefully help you guys find your North Star and the impact that you wish to have on the world. Anyways, without further ado, I just asked John to explain his perspective on what narratives are and what the difference is between narrative and story. For most people, narrative is the same thing as a story. They're synonymous, stories are narratives and vice versa. To me, there's a big distinction and the distinction at a high level is stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle and an end to them. And the stories are about somebody else. They're about the storyteller or about some other people. They're not about you. You can use your imagination, figure out what you would have done, but it's not about you. In contrast, for me, narratives are open-ended. There's some kind of big opportunity or threat out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help resolve this narrative and how, whether we achieve that threat or opportunity. So it's a very powerful driver of the sense of agency that your actions are going to make a real difference. And in that context, I would say that one of the issues that I see, and it ties back to the theme of fear, is that increasingly... I'll just talk about the political environment. We're in a world where on all sides, the politicians, our leaders have fallen on what I call threat-based narratives. The enemy's coming to get us. We're all going to die. We need to mobilize now and resist. That feeds the fear and polarizes because there are people who are going to try to kill me. What I believe is what we're missing and what we desperately need is what I call an opportunity-based narrative, where what if we had some leaders who came out and said, imagine the amazing things we could accomplish if we all came together. Imagine what we could accomplish, the big opportunity. And in my experience, that opportunity-based narrative is just not around. And I would say, 
I get the resistance from many people who say, come on, we have the amygdala, we're responsive to fear, so the threat-based narratives are what people want to hear. And I say, no, I don't think that's true. I think we are receptive to the threat-based narratives because the amygdala is there. But tell me one person who said that they want to live in fear. I don't think anybody wants to live in fear. We all want to have a sense of hope and excitement. But for that, we need an opportunity-based narrative. I've been talking to different people about the way we feel within this greater narrative. And the greatest threat is not necessarily fear, but closer to apathy. So this notion that no matter what I do, it doesn't really matter. No matter what I vote, what's going to happen is going to happen anyways. And I'm wondering... How do you see us tackling the sense that we are trapped within something that is bigger than us, that is running out of control, that we no longer can actually touch? No, it's a good question. I would say that certainly apathy is a prevalent feeling. I, I do believe that underneath the apathy in many people, if not most, is fear. They're not just feeling helpless. They're feeling the world's going in ways that is not favorable, but there's nothing they can do about it. But I think that getting people to really have a sense of agency that they can make a difference is critical. And part of it, is, I'll bring in another concept that I've been a strong proponent of, which is what I call zoom out, zoom in approaches to strategy. Some of the most successful tech companies in Silicon Valley pursue a very different approach to strategy than most traditional companies. They focus on two different time horizons in parallel. One time horizon is 10 to 20 years, a very long-term zoom out horizon. And the questions there are, what's our relevant market or industry going to look like 10 to 20 years from now? And what do we need to become in order to really be successful in that market or industry 10 to 20 years from now? Zoom in, very different time horizon, six to 12 months. And on that horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three that we could pursue in the next six to 12 months that would accelerate our movement towards that longer-term opportunity? And do we have a critical mass of resource against those two or three initiatives in the next six to 12 months? And then how do we measure success? What are the metrics that matter? The power of the combination of those two is that you can focus people on things they can do right now that will have real impact and start to accelerate the movement towards that longer-term opportunity. And so I think Tying it back to narratives, the really effective opportunity-based narratives also need to articulate what could you do in the short term, what small actions could you take today that would start to have really meaningful impact. And so it gives people a sense of, yes, there is something you can do. And as they see the impact that they're achieving from those actions, it gives them more and more confidence and inspiration about that longer-term opportunity and helps them to overcome their fear. So I think that's a key element is being very focused on short-term action to drive long-term fundamental change and opportunity. That's a theme that I've been seeing a lot on this podcast. When we talk to different guests, it's you can have a big save the world goal, but there's also how you show up in the little micro decisions that you make every single day that help you 
actually navigate and get there. And so paying attention to both at the same time is really important. And it's about having what I would describe as a learning mindset that your focus is on these short-term actions to learn from the actions, to learn from the impact you're achieving. What worked? What had more impact than I expected? How can I do more of that? What had less impact than I expected? Why was that? And how can I not do that in the future? So it's a learning mindset that says we learn through action rather than just sitting there thinking about great opportunities or great ideas. Let's act on them. There's this amazing quote that I like that artist used by a guy called Chuck Close, where he says, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get down and work. <laughs> um, and the, the whole premise of it is that inspiration comes to you in the process of creating. It doesn't just come from those who just wish to be inspired. You can't just sit there hoping for inspiration to strike. When you talk about Passion of the Explorer, it's a really interesting framework for people who know what they're good at, what the world needs, and maybe how they fit into it. However, what would you say to those who maybe don't know how they fit in the world? Let's say they've been acquiring a certain number of skills, but they want to change. Uh, and now they're back at zero and they don't know how their skills fit in the world to make the difference that they want to have or that their career path that they've been pursuing thus far don't actually fit their passion or the cause that they're trying to make a difference in. How do you recommend that process of alignment take place? Yeah, it's challenging. I think very few of us actually have found and cultivated our passion of the explorer. And I see a lot of pushback and resistance when I talk about this. One of the common objections I get is, oh, come on, some of us are capable of being passionate, but most of us just want to be told what to do and have security of income, et cetera. And I, I resist that. I think we all have within us very deeply a need for that kind of excitement and motivation. Part of the problem is that we live in environments that discourage passion. Many of us have had parents who said, forget about the fact that you're excited about something. Focus on developing the skills and pursuing a career that's going to make you a good living, regardless of whether you're excited about it. Just do it because that's the way to make a good living. And then we go into institutions where they're very suspect of people who have passion. Passionate people are constantly taking risks. They're constantly deviating from the script that they've been given. And that's not allowed. In the institutions we have, it's all about following instructions to the letter and delivering predictably and reliably without failure. And to your question on how do you find it, I think it is a process of exploration. I have two daughters, and the only advice I gave them as children when they are asking what they should be doing, I said, find your passion. And to me, it's about being open to new experiences and reflecting continuously on what experiences really gave you excitement, what really stimulated you, what gave you energy. And is there a common pattern? Because often there are many different kinds of experiences, but if you pull back and reflect on it, there's a pattern. There's something that all those experiences have in common. And if you haven't gotten any excitement, keep exploring, keep looking for new experiences until you find something that's really that exciting and that will motivate you to move forward. And I think it is a process of just being open to new experiences 
and very actively reflecting on those experiences until you find something that really gives you that sustained passion. And a key element in the passion of the explorer is this long-term commitment to a domain. It's not just something that excites you for the next week or two. It's something that you're ready to commit your life to, at least most of your life. And that it's the commitment is not just to be in that area, but it's to make more and more of an impact in that area. And that excites you. That motivates you. I want to have more impact. I want to make more of a difference in this area. So that's really the key in, in terms of determining, have you found your passion yet? Do you have that kind of commitment to make more and more of an impact? And does that really excite you? Do you think that the commitment to passion is like commitment to a relationship? When <laughs> I think if you talk to any relationship counselor, a marriage counselor, they'll say that love alone is not enough. What it takes is a commitment to the other person that you're going to work together towards figuring things out. So when it comes to passion and finding something and choosing a domain or even choosing a cause, let's say you're passionate about the oceans or you're passionate about biodiversity or you're passionate about inequality, is it more just about saying, this is the field I'm going to focus on regardless of what happens and I'm going to make it work? Or what do you think the balance is there? I don't think people can just say, I'm going to commit to this. There's this whole concept of grit, just determination. You commit to something and you just pursue it regardless, and discipline is key. No, to me, the people who have this kind of passion are not doing it because of determination and grit and, and discipline. They're doing it because they're excited. They need to do it. They want to do it. This is what excites them to do it. And so that's the filter that I would urge people to use is, are you pursuing this because you've just decided this is what you're going to be committed to? Or is it because you are driven to, to do this and you are excited about that opportunity? And I think that's, again, you talked about personal relationships. I think that's a key question in personal relationships. Are you really excited about learning about the other person and helping achieve more of our potential as two people? Or are you doing it because this is what you were told the relationship is about? I wanted to dive into this idea of curiosity around narratives. And I think that we live in a very uncertain time where there are so many different narratives that are being written in a very polarized world. How do you recommend people live a narrative that they actually want to cultivate? This concept of the passion of the explorer is not just a theoretical concept that I came up with sitting in my study one day. It's based on research where I'm, I believe we're in a world of, of increasing pressure. They call it the big shift, mounting performance pressure. And so I went out and tried to find environments where there is sustained extreme performance improvement in very high pressure environments. And what could we learn from those environments? And I ended up looking at environments that were quite diverse, everything from extreme sports, big wave surfing and extreme skiing to online war game environments, World of Warcraft, where talk about pressure. If you make the wrong move, you're going to die. And what I found was the common element in all the participants in those environments, despite the diversity, 
was this very specific form of passion. I'll just give the example of big wave surfing. Everybody thinks of this as a, a solo sport. There's only one person on the surfboard. It's all about that one person. There's no team activity. It's actually fairly different for the extreme surfers. What you find is those people are coming together. They go to certain surf areas, certain beaches where there are big surf waves, and they're cultivating a very deep relationship with others who share their passion around addressing more and more challenging waves. And they're constantly working to help each other to figure out how do I do this? There's constant encouragement, constant challenging. It's the impact that is driving these people is yes, they want to surf bigger and bigger waves, but they realize that by helping others to surf big waves, they're going to learn a lot in the process and become even better at what they do. And so I think the people who have this passion are not selfish people that are just looking out for themselves. They're driven to have an impact in the domain and an increasing impact over time that benefits others, not just themselves. So let's make this a little bit more personal. In your life, as you've navigated all these different possibilities of what your life could have been, what was it like to go through different interests that you may have thought you were interested in, but didn't turn out to be? And how did you know when you had really found the right thing? What were the struggles along the way? Make it personal. <laughs> no, it has been a journey. I think that at one level, if you look over my life, I've been passionate about very different things. As a small child, I would drag my parents to a construction site on weekends so that I could crawl up on a big construction equipment and pretend that I was building something. Later on, I got interested in the role of markets in helping to connect people and create more value in a society. Then I became really excited about strategy as a way to really leverage the resources you have and achieve more impact. And then I was drawn to Silicon Valley, and I was really excited about the digital technology and its exponential improvement. So very different kinds of interests. If you look at it over my life, you'd say, well, this person doesn't have any real passion, or he's shifting his passions all the time. But one of the insights for me was I stepped back at a point relatively late in my life, and I reflected on all those different things that excited me, and I found there was a common element in all of them. And that's what was really exciting, and that was the domain, if you will, that really drove my passion. And it was this notion that I was ultimately looking for ways to create platforms that would help people achieve more of their potential, whether it was building a, a, a new office building or apartment building as a child with my construction equipment or with technology. It was all about the platform and helping people to achieve more of their potential. And that was a big breakthrough for me and helped me to clarify in my own mind, what was it that was really underneath all that and that was really driving me and helped me to focus much more clearly. One thing that comes to mind as you speak to the question of exploring your own desires, your own needs, your own wants, there's a lot of I inside of this equation. One of the things, and I'm just going to speak to myself here, that I struggle with is there are lots of things that I want as a human being, a lot of it driven by ego. But what 
prevents me from pursuing it is the constant thought of what the world needs. In your explorations, then, how do you draw the boundaries and lines between being selfish and, I don't know, let's say you just want to be great? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that ultimately people who have the passion to explore are driven not by their own self-interest. They're driven by having an impact in the domain, not just making money themselves, but making a difference in whatever domain. It could be anything but from gardening to product design to working in a factory, but making a difference for others in your domain. That's what's driving you in terms of your passion. And yes, on the side, you may make some money. On the side, you may get famous or well-known, but that's not what's driving you. I'm struck by the number of people here. Again, I keep coming back to Silicon Valley here who are not at all driven by making money. They're driven by changing the world. That's what excites them. And that's what's motivating them. And yes, many of them have made money along the way. But what you find is the people who have that passion, despite all the money they've made, they're driving for the next one. What's the next way that I can have impact? Because that's what motivates them. That's what excites them. Again, we tend to focus on challenges as threats. We're all going to die. How about reframing them as opportunities? What could we accomplish if we could produce so much more with so much less energy consumption and less pollution in the world? What could we accomplish? How much more could we produce? Yes, there's poverty and there are people who have no schooling. What could we accomplish if those children had schooling? What amazing things. And again, it's just reframing it as the opportunity versus the threat. Because again, I believe that's what's going to bring us together versus pull us apart. When I hear you speaking, it almost feels like you're pulling in optimism towards you in the way that you see the world. Could you break down, just for the listeners here, what you mean by the power of pull and how it is something that we could or should be cultivating inside of our lives? I believe we're in the early stages of a profound transformation. And there are many ways of representing the transformation, but one way is that we're moving from a world of push to a world of pull. And what I mean by that is, if you think about it in business terms, Push is all about you develop a forecast of demand, you push all the right people and resources into the right place at the right time to meet that demand, and great things happen. Works in a more stable world, in an increasingly uncertain and rapidly changing world, that push-based model is increasingly challenged. And my belief is the, the institutions that will succeed in the future are those who master the power of pull which is how can you draw out the right people and resources when you need them and where you need them versus having them all in place in advance and doing that with platforms where it's not just a few participants, it's thousands and maybe even millions of participants that you can draw in, pull in when you need them. And I think that's really the requirement for success in the future. And then at, at a broader level, I differentiated between three levels of pull, which is uh, one level, it's all about access. So I have a need. 
how can I find the people or resources or answers that I need and access them quickly? That's the most fundamental level of pull. That's what I think most people focus on when they talk about pull. There are two other levels of pull that are even more powerful and increasingly necessary. Second level of pull is what I call attract. How do you attract people and resources to seek you out, even though you haven't asked for them? But when you find them, when they, you connect with them, you get this amazing new insight or, or answer that you didn't have before. That's powerful. And then the highest level of pull is this notion of drawing out, pulling out from within us more and more of our potential. How do we pull out more and more of that potential over time, learn faster and have more and more impact? And obviously that ties back to the passion of the explorer. But ultimately, I think that's the most powerful form of pull is pulling out our potential and growing and learning faster together. In many ways, pull is interchangeable with the word of serendipity, right? Well, serendipity, I think, applies specifically to that second level of pull, which is attracting people to you that you didn't even know existed. That's serendipity. And I think one of the things I've, I've been challenging is the mindset that many of us have, which is serendipity or luck is just it's going to happen when it happens. There's nothing you can do about it except be prepared when it happens. No, I actually believe you can shape serendipity. You can increase the probability of those unexpected encounters. And it can be very simple things like one of the questions I ask executives is, how tightly scheduled is your day? If you have meetings from breakfast until after dinner scheduled in back to back with people that you already know, you're not creating any space for those unexpected encounters. There's no time. Your, your time is fully blocked. How about creating blocks of time where you just go out and, and explore and open yourself up to encounters that, and I'm talking pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic here, but where you're opening up to that possibility of those unexpected encounters. That's going to increase the probability. Doesn't guarantee it. Doesn't mean you're always going to have those valuable unexpected encounters, but it increases the probability that you will. So there are a whole series of actions that I think we can take that will increase the likelihood of serendipity. And just for the listeners here, what are a couple actions that they could take that are pandemic friendly? <laughs> I am by nature an introvert, so I'm not normally attracted to large crowds or groups of people. But one of the things that I found extremely helpful in increasing serendipity is writing. If you have an idea, write it down and post it somewhere on some blog post or online site and just see what the reactions of people are. And I can't tell you the number of people who've reached out to me having read something that I wrote and saying, I have an idea. Can we talk about it? And it turns out it's something I hadn't thought about and really helpful in terms of giving me more insight about my interests. And it's just a very powerful way to draw people, to attract people. And by the way, also, and this is very countercultural for most of us, it's when you're writing, asking for help, saying, here's a really interesting question. I don't think I have got an answer for it. Do you have any ideas? Can you help me? And invite people 
to seek you out versus just waiting, hoping that they might seek you out. It's being active and saying, I need help. And that certainly increases the potential for serendipity. I, I love this idea of saying, you know what, I am going to broadcast to the world the kinds of questions that I'm asking and the types of topics that I am interested in. If you would like to speak to me about it, please connect. And in some ways, I think this is what this podcast has been about for me, which is let's create something that talks about positive impact in unexpected places. And along the way, I get an excuse to reach out to people that I may have encountered very briefly, like yourself, to come on and then we can dive into a topic. And so it's a similar strategy in a, in, in a different medium. And I, and I really love that. On that note, I would love to end on one question for you. And that is, if you had a megaphone to the world and you could invite people to do one thing, what would that thing be? <laughs> one thing is to really focus on your emotions. We live in many societies around the world, cultures that have increasingly become driven by reason and analysis versus emotions. It's all about the numbers and all about the analysis. I think until and unless we really, first of all, look inside and really reflect on what are the emotions that are driving us and motivating us today, we're not going to achieve the full potential that we ought to, and then figure out how to evolve those emotions so that it can help us to achieve more and more of our potential, can motivate us to move forward in more bold ways that will help us to, to learn faster. And I will say, related to that too, a key theme in my work is the notion that individuals alone are not going to be able to achieve as much of their potential as they could if they came together and supported each other. I've developed a strong view around what I call impact groups, where the, the people who learn fastest and achieve the most impact are coming together in small groups of three to 15 people and developing deep trust-based relationships with each other, driven by a shared commitment to having more impact in a particular area. And so part of my advice to people is look at your emotions, figure out what, it, what it's going to take to motivate you, to really excite you, to achieve more impact, and then find others that you can connect with who will help you to achieve more and more of that impact because you'll never do it just on your own uh, by yourself. Whatever, no matter how smart you are, how capable you are, you're going to achieve a lot more if you come together with others and are motivated by a really inspiring opportunity. It's a beautiful way to end this. Are you going to be writing a blog post on how to design and customize your own impact focus group? <laughs> I've, I've written a, a variety of things. I've got a research report on uh, business practice redesign, which focuses on work groups within businesses, because I've come to believe that's a key, going to be a key driver of performance in businesses, these frontline work groups. And I've written about small groups in the context of movements, the most successful movements throughout history have been organized around what I call a cellular structure where basically it's all about coming together in small groups and then connecting them into a network of much broader uh, participants. All right. And if people want to go and uh, read up about all of these different things that you've written about and, and uh, in, 
and absorb it into their own practices, where should they go? There are lots of places. I, I have my own website, johnhagel.com. I've got a lot of my blogs and material there. If you just go to Center for the Edge and my name, you'll find a site that has a lot of the research reports that we've produced over the past 13 years. And then I'm very active on social media, so I definitely share a lot of my thoughts and writings on, on social media as well. Alrighty, folks, that was John Hagel. It's spelled H-A-G-E-L for those of you who were wondering. And if you found any of these topics particularly interesting, you can go way deeper down the rabbit hole on his blog. He writes something new every couple weeks, and there's a wealth of knowledge there that you can go and discover. And the best part, it's all free. For those of you who are just looking for show notes and a summary of this week's episode, you can always find that at impacteverywhere.org. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the kind of thing that gets more people listening to amazing speakers like John. Next week, we hear from Laura Callanan from Upstart Collab, which is an organization that tries to connect impact investors to the creative economy. If that sounds interesting to you, make sure to sign up and tune in. And remember to have a great week despite the chaos because impact is everywhere. <laughs>